Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I'm your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto, and I want to acknowledge that the land I am settled on today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. I give gratitude and thanks. I am here today with Miriam Tolson Murti. Miriam was born in Windsor, Ontario. Her mother, Martha Elliott Tolson was also born in Windsor, and her father, George Tolson Sr., was born in Detroit. Miriam is the Strategic Planning Officer for Anti-Black Racism Initiatives in the Office of the President at the University of Windsor. And as if she wasn't busy enough, Miriam has been the president of the Hour a Day Study Club for the past three years. There will be those of you who will ask, what's the Hour a Day Study Club? When I first heard about them in 2019, I was blown away and learned an amazing piece of Black Canadian history. They are incredible women and their story needs to be told. And Miriam will talk with me about them as we go along. Welcome, Miriam, and thank you for freeing up some of your valuable time to chat with me today. Oh, thank you, Donna. I'm so excited to be here today and thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Before we start to talk about the work that you do at the university and the Hour a Day Study Club, What can you tell me about your ancestors on both sides of your family and the history of how they came to be living here in Windsor? And I appreciate that starting point. Well, with my mother, born and raised in Windsor, Ontario, descendant of the Underground Railroad, Indigenous ancestry as well. It's interesting because I had a conversation with my 11-year-old daughter today about three of her four grandparents are no longer with us. So we had a quick conversation about, you know, all my friends, you know, they talk about their grandparents and they get to go visit and, you know, grandma and grandpa are no longer here. And I said, I had that same conversation with my friends when I was small because I never grew up knowing my grandparents. My mom's mom passed away at 42. My mother's father passed away in the 60s, long before I was born. Same with my father's mother passed away before I was born. And my grandfather uh, on my father's side passed when I was about one years old. So I do not remember that history at all. But, you know, come from a very large family. My mother, she was the only girl, seven brothers. My father came from an equally large family, 12 in his family. And I'm the youngest of seven. So, <laughs> so as you can imagine, quite an extensive family. Definitely when it comes up to my mother's side, Her family resided in this area. Her father was originally from the United States, so he came to Canada from Virginia. He was born in 1899, so he was significantly older than my grandmother, who was born around 1913, 1914. My family resided like Windsor, Colchester area, uh, many of uh, the Bayless family, uh, which is like my mother's side. My grandmother was Gertrude Bayless sort of still reside in Colchester, Chatham, Windsor area, and in my father's side, some here in Windsor, but still many still residing in Michigan and just throughout the United States. And how did your parents meet? 
they actually said that they met at a party. Father would always say, oh, you know, it was love at first sight. He knew just as soon as he met my mom. And yeah, my mother was just like, yeah, he was okay. <laughs> but, you know, they, they were together for well over 50 years. And unfortunately, um, they're no longer with us. My father passed away in 2008. My mother, it's going on five years. And I just miss my parents so much because I feel... Yeah, I feel like I'm still navigating through this world and trying to do right by them and making them proud because I, I feel like they're, you know, still watching over me and sort of keep in mind, you know, what my mother and father taught me growing up and just the, the beliefs and the confidence that they tried to instill in me. Did your parents ever talk about racism or the challenges that they face living in Windsor? My mother, you know, being born uh, in 1933. Uh, she had me a little later in life. My dad was born in 1934. So you can imagine everything that they witnessed and they experienced. They both called themselves, you know, the Depression era babies because coming off the, the heels of the Great Depression and, and you know, the stock market crash in 1929. Talked about it in the sense that from the perspective of, you know, just kind of growing up poor, not having a lot of money. She was a huge athlete and like I have pictures of her on her basketball team from the late 40s, early 50s, the four-star high school, and she's the only Black player. And a lot of times she was the only Black females um, or Black students, period, in her school. My dad, he grew up in a, in a Black neighborhood um, in Detroit, the projects, you know, the, the same neighborhood that Diana Ross grew up in when she was younger, went to Cass Tech High School, all that stuff. But definitely the racism was there. And he definitely noticed the racism more so once he joined the Army and he went into the Korean War. But just sort of told me different ways to go about handling it. Never from a perspective of, okay, being confrontational and ready to get into fights and things of that nature. They both came from deep religious families. I think there was just a lot of that belief in terms of just having faith and knowing things that will change, not feeding into other people's perceptions of who you are and what your skills and abilities are. Definitely, you would not tolerate someone calling you the N-word or anything like that. Absolutely not. And there was racism experience in you know, the workplace and things like that, but they just persevered. And I think a lot of us still do that today. You know, you just continue to do the work that needs to be done. Sometimes you might complain, sometimes you cannot because of just the circumstances around you. You know, you need to keep that job because you have a family at home. But I definitely got my strength in terms of how to address issues of racism and injustice from my mom and dad, for sure. I was part of the In the Black Canada Collective that Kenneth Montague commissioned to do a video for an exhibition at the Art Gallery of Windsor, which we called The Windsor Project. We talked to Lois Larkin, we talked to Spurgeon Montague, we talked to Elise Harding Davis, just to name a few, about racism in Windsor during their time. I heard stories of Black women not being able to apply to hospitals to be nurses, restaurants where Blacks were not welcome, jobs and housing Blacks could not get. Can you speak to a bit of that? Absolutely. And my mother could even speak to that. I mean, I, I remember a story that she told me about Tunnel Barbecue when she was young. And she uh, went into Tunnel Barbecue with her aunt at the time, and they denied them service. Their rationale was, we don't serve the poor. 
and my question was, well, how did they know you were poor? And she's like, well, they just equated, well, we're black, so we must be poor. And they, they did not want to serve us. And I think as I kind of grew as a teenager and a young adult, because these aren't necessarily stories she told me when I was young. It's almost like she waited till I was old enough to really kind of grasp and comprehend. And this was at the height of like, oh, TBQ was so popular in the city. And like, I would even go there. Like I would have a Friday class um, at the university. And on Friday afternoon, I would go there with friends, have some dessert. And it was just like, oh my goodness, if I had known that story, I would not have supported in any way this establishment, Tunnel Barbecue, it's, it's gone. But if she had told me that story years ago, I would not have spent my time and money there just in protest and solidarity of what she experienced and what I'm sure other Black families experienced too. But my mom was, you know, she was a secretary of the Windsor Black Coalition for many, many years, worked with individuals like Lois Larkin and Clayton Talbot in terms of fighting for social justice for folks in the Black community because of housing discrimination and school discrimination and so, so many other things. So she was a huge advocate. She was instrumental in helping to bring the Jobs Ontario Youth Program to Windsor back in the early 90s. And that was a program to help bring jobs for Black in the community, heavily involved with First Baptist Church Windsor and, and Sandwich Baptist Church, because there was a period of time where she lived right next door to Sandwich Baptist Church and lifelong friends with Charlotte Watkins. There was a lot of advocacy work that she did for the Black community while she was with us. What was it like for you as a young Black girl growing up in Windsor? Being the youngest of seven and between the oldest and the youngest, there's like a 17-year age difference. And between the next in line to me are my brother and sister who are twins, and there's a six-year age difference then. So I'm significantly younger than everybody else. So I feel for a period of time, I was probably sheltered from a lot of things. My sister, like, yeah, she's just six years older than me. I remember her telling me a story when she was in elementary school and she was telling a teacher that, oh, you know, miss, you know, so-and-so called me the N-word. And the teacher told her, well, you are. And I was just like, what? You know, it's stories like that. And that's almost like the tip of the iceberg that they experience in elementary school. And they're just a few years older than me, where you know, my experience, I think, coming up was just a little more subtle, where teachers did try to stream me into particular programs and things of like that nature. And I try to do that to my siblings as well. Once again, having parents that are like, no, no, I know my child. I know what their skills and abilities are. They're going to university. They're going to do this. And I'm thankful that I actually had a high school teacher in grade nine that uh, I was enrolled in a general English course, not even after the second week. Uh, he called me to his desk and I thought I was in trouble. I thought I did something. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You should be in an advanced English course. I don't understand why you're in this. And so pretty much after that, all of my eight courses through high school were advanced courses. But it was just that assumption from finishing elementary school and going to the high school, oh, well, this is what she's capable of. And then just even in the school system, I mean, there wasn't a lot of representation in terms of teachers that looked like me. I am thankful that in elementary school, both of my music teachers, so I had Jim Walls, who was the first Black principal in Windsor, and Karen Kersey were my music teachers. That was the first time I had an opportunity to experience working 
with black educators. In high school, I did not experience that at all. Even in university, I didn't experience that until my fourth year. I think just in terms of the experience growing up, I have to say it was pretty positive experience. I don't think in the grand scheme of things, I came up against any really racist incidents. I can just think of, you know, someone that I dated, a white young man who a stepfather didn't want us to be together because, oh, well, you're white, she's black, da, da, da. Okay. I can think of in elementary school, someone saying to me, I was probably grade seven or eight, you know, Miriam, you're, you're black, but you're, you're not really black, you know? So whatever their perception of what a black person should be, I wasn't that. So whatever, whatever stereotypical image that they had in their mind. I obviously didn't fit that mold. And and I just remember that today. And I actually didn't even know how to respond. Like, was that supposed to be a compliment? Should I like, okay? Like, even today, it's just like, wow. And, And just knowing as an adult, I know individuals have said that to other Black adults, thinking that they're paying them some sort of a compliment, like, especially in the workplace or something like, oh, you know, you're not like those other black folks, right? Like you pretty much like you've assimilated pretty well. So you're, you're, you're okay. You're one of us, right? Like you, just, <laughs> you hear things like that. And you, and you just, you're just kind of stunned because it's like, how do I respond? It's funny that you say that because I grew up in an armed forces base and my family was the only black family from the time I was five until I was in grade six. People would say, well, you're not like those other blacks. Like we were like the good blacks or something, you know? And I just, it made me feel very disconnected to other Black people. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there was a part of me that felt, am I not as connected to the Black community as I should be? Like, even though I have like all these brothers and sisters, do I not connect with them? Do I not relate to them? So for that little piece of you, okay, well, am I not Black enough? Yeah, no, thank you for saying that because I, I think probably been searching for a while in terms of yeah, that, that that was that piece. It was I not considered Black enough. I'm going to switch gears here. I was in London, Ontario, interviewing Anika Allen, who is one of the people featured on my InTheBlackCanada.ca website. And she mentioned the Hour a Day Study Club. She gave me your contact information. And you so graciously invited David and me to your house. And you got in touch with longtime member Glendora Watkins, who was 89 at the time and asked if we could visit her the next day. And we not only got to meet her, but also her sister, Joyce. It was sweet. They were so welcoming and lovely and agreed to let us record them. It's so bittersweet because I have her voice on tape and Glendora passed away last year. I'm going to play you a little bit of the tape of her voice here. My name is Glendora Watkins. I have been a member of the RD Study Club since 1968. The club got started in Windsor because we had a school called Mercer Street School when black kids coming out of grade eight did not have a party or what the other schools had. And there was a group of mothers that decided that they were going to see that these children had the same opportunity. And I think that went on for maybe three or four years. I'm not sure of the year. And then Mercer Street School closed and then of course, we mixed in with the other schools that had the auditoriums and everything, you know, when the kids graduated. I've heard you say that the Hour Day Study Club is Canada's best kept secret. Tell us about the club. What was it that Glendora was talking about there? The Hour Day Study Club, as you mentioned, 
started 87 years ago. And when it was first established, it was called the, the Mother's Club. These were um, a group of Black women, all underground railroad descendants, because at that time, in 1934, there wasn't the prevalence of Blacks from other cultural groups. We have individuals from Caribbean and Africa. At that time, it was purely underground railroad descendants. So a group of women decided to formulate the Mother's Club. Then about a year later, they decided, uh, because there was a prevalence of groups being called the Mother's Club, and they were also affiliated with the local council of women. To be a member of the local council of women, it was typically by group affiliation. We didn't want to be, okay, you know, the mother's club that, oh, represents black mothers or the, you know, the mother's club that represents this or that. So they did change their name to the Hour Day Study Club because they did care about the education of black youth in the community with the idea behind it that if they want to sort of hone their skills in anything in particular, that they should at least spend one hour a day on that particular subject in order to build their level of expertise. And so the name stuck. So aside from caring about uplifting our youth and the Black race and the Black community, especially at that time, because there was still much social unrest and inequities and, you know, injustices going on around the world and within the community as well, as we talked about earlier, like housing discrimination and discrimination in the schools and things of that nature. This was an opportunity for the women not only to go about doing various forms of social justice and advocacy, but also working towards meeting the needs and working towards building up the confidence of our young people in the pursuits of post-secondary education. And then that just kind of carried on and just grew and grew and grew over the years. And then eventually a scholarship was developed for the youth as well that were going on to pursue post-secondary education. But at the same time, they hosted various cultural events, you know, high tea events were definitely one of their signature events where they would have various well-known artists again they would host guest speakers early on there, there's still a, a program that i do not have in my possession but i know it's at the Innisburg freedom museum when they hosted shirley chisholm you can just imagine what that was like and they also hosted uh, mary mcleod bethune when she came to windsor for emancipation day events they were just really about uplifting one another, uplifting other Black women. And these women were essentially homemakers as well. So they had active roles, not only in the community, but within their families as well. They were so involved with their church community. And all of this essentially taking place in the McDougal Street Corridor. For those that um, are familiar with the McDougal Street Corridor, this is definitely where Black families live. I mean, we know about Sandwich Town, absolutely, and obviously First Baptist Church, but the McDougal Street Corridor was huge in terms of our families in that particular area. And many of us still, I, I know I was still like maybe five, six years old once I moved out of that neighborhood, and that neighborhood has really transformed over the years. But many of us still have these memories because it was just other folks that looked like us, that were our neighbors and that watched out for us and told us to be home when the streetlights came on and stuff like that. But 
these women were really entrenched in that community. And today we just do our best to carry on their legacy and just keeping it in terms of preserving the, the heritage of the Underground Railroad descendant. I heard you speak at the Amherstburg Freedom Museum about the preservation of culture, heritage, and Black feminist thought in Windsor, Essex. And in the early brochures, the founding women of the club are listed as Mrs. George Lucas, Mrs. Farrell S. Watkins, Mrs. Joseph Browning. Can you tell us why it's important that these women are given a voice and their own full names? Thank you for mentioning that because in those days, at that time, you know, these were very traditional women and these were very traditional times. And every single woman that we initially came across, they had their husband's names. And it was just definitely our mission and the, and the mission of one of our members is like, we need to give these women their voices and we just need to bring the club into the 21st century. And I've been saying that since I you know, became president. And when we were talking about the names of the women and how they presented themselves back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, what better way to look at reclaiming and bringing the club into the 21st century than finding out who they were outside of being a wife and a mother. We were able to get the first and last name of each and every single one of our founding members. We call it, you know, a reclamation. And especially, too, it came on the heels of Women's History Month. I really wanted to focus more on womenism. In 2020, there was a lot of talk about the anniversary of the women's right to vote. Everybody was talking about Susan B. Anthony and so on and so forth. And it's just like, are people just really not clued into the fact that the feminist movement really did not put Black women at any sort of advantage at all? Okay, women got the right to vote, but still, that did nothing for Black women. Black people, Black in the United States, still didn't get the right to vote until 1965. And even then, still made it difficult. Even today, (laughs) they still make it difficult. And I think that's what really sparked it as well. It's just like, okay, you know what? Everybody wants to talk about feminism and all the strides that are being made. But once again, we are not looking at the intersectionality of feminism and how employment equity has traditionally advantaged white women as opposed to women of color and black women or even black men. I think there's much more to be explored about that. I think there needs to be further conversations about that because I think people are looking at issues of feminism and especially black feminism from a very distorted lens or just from a very limited view. And the thing about these women, they were concerned about their children and the education of their children, but they were also learning themselves. They were educating themselves as well, right? Yes. And that's what I really love as well. I mean, each meeting, and we still carry on this tradition as well in terms of meeting once a month, uh, the second Saturday of every month. And back in the day when the club members were meeting, they would discuss books that they read. If they had an opportunity to travel abroad, they would show pictures and brochures and things like that because it was just about introducing them to culture. And if someone had a chance to travel overseas and come back and be able to provide their firsthand account, that was just so inspiring because of the fact that not many Black people were in positions to do that. 
at that particular time. So if someone was able to do that and come back and share, it was just a cultural experience for everybody. So I just really enjoyed learning that aspect of it that, okay, you know what, we are going to do this for everybody and we're going to engage everyone in this learning, whether or not they were able to be there physically or not. I don't know who told me this story that the women would read books and that sometimes someone couldn't afford the book. It might've been only cost 15 cents, but at that time that was lots of money. And so some of the children in the neighborhood would bike the book over to the next woman's house so that she could get to read the book. Yes. I mean, it's just so amazing. And I think that was just it. There was just, they wanted to provide the opportunity for not even just the black women that were in the community, but for black families to be exposed to the information that they weren't necessarily getting in the schools or did not have access to because maybe their particular school had limited resources and things of that nature. But it was just spreading the wealth to a great extent in terms of we have this information, so let's share it for your own edification. Another thing that really sparked the quest for knowledge because of their own personal circumstances that maybe they could not go on to further education because of the financial means that were available to them at that particular time and they couldn't pursue post-secondary education, that having access to library resources or having concert pianists that are nationally recognized come to them and perform and things like that, that was their opportunity to really have this world-class culture brought to them. And also at this time too, in terms of, you know, post-secondary education, there were a lot of our post-secondary institutions in Canada that were not taking Black students. So I, I think that's a piece that all of us need to remember as well. Queen's University was not accepting Black people into their medical school for, you know, a number of years. And then once that admission policy was taken off the books, they were still technically not admitting individuals. And that's just one example. So many either did not go to post-secondary education, either because of the family situation, the finances, or maybe just denied access because of the fact that they were Black women. When David and I visited, you still had all the posters and the materials and photos from the 85th celebration. I think you'd had it just the night before or the weekend before we were there. I asked Joyce Robbins about the evening, and I'm going to play you another little clip here from, from Joyce. It was a wonderful affair. The people supported us wonderfully. We had a nice crowd, and our speaker, he was really great. It was just a, our, our usual, you know, everybody together, enjoying it. You always talk about past. I think that that's what you enjoy, because you go to see people that you haven't seen for many years and uh, get reacquainted. And I think that that was the nicest part about having these luncheons because we don't want people to forget us. And they do. And I, and I don't understand it because somebody will, just like you're saying, will say, well, I never even heard of them. And here we, and I said, well, that sounds ridiculous. I said, we've been around for 80 five years and you've never heard of us. And so this is really why we try to put on these luncheons so that at least people that haven't seen us or heard about us for years, you know, and we will get, hopefully somebody will come to join us. We're looking for more people to join the club, you know, because as I say, as you see, most of the people are um, 
in our age bracket and you know we're just tired what has the loss of glendora in particular and other long-term members meant to the club and what would you you talked a bit about what is their legacy but what would you say more about their legacy oh gosh yeah individuals like glendora not only was she a firecracker and i'm sure you realized that when you you met her but she was just so incredibly active until she just could not any longer and she just worked tirelessly for the club and would just get on the phone and call people to sell tickets. And and it's funny because when she was selling tickets to a luncheon, it wasn't like, oh, you know, would you be interested in buying? Oh, so how many are you buying? (laughs) (laughs) So there wasn't a question and nobody (laughs) turned her down. So (laughs) incredible. And she was just a living library. I mean, the fact that you could go to her, because once again, you know, our scholarships uh, do go to underground railroad descendants. And so whenever she would speak to a young person or would look at a young person's application uh, that applied for the scholarship, okay, well, who's their grandmother? She would know who their grandmother or their great grandmother was. And that was the source of sort of corroborating whether or not they were under, because it was like, oh, yes, I went to school with your grandmother back in, you know, whatever the case might be. So she just knew all the families, all the history. And we try to get so much documented from her as much as we could while she was with us. But you just never think that someone like her is going to leave us so soon. You always think that you have more time. And I think that's with any of our our loved ones. You always think that you have more time, but she was just definitely kept us honest, made sure the books were correct and that um, we we were doing everything that we could to make sure that we were getting as much money out to kids that were going on to post-secondary education as possible. So she was just a true, true, true advocate of the club. And, And I think her spirit lives with us in everything that we do and how we continue to approach everything in the hour day study club just in terms of if we feel like giving up or if we feel that we're not working hard enough or advocating enough or getting out in the community enough we just think of her in terms of what would she tell us and what would she do and just the fact yeah she really kept on working up until yeah she passed just as she turned 90 And I think right up until she was about 88, she was doing that work. She was still on the phone, (laughs) even though she wasn't as mobile. She was still on the phone, making those calls and reaching out to as many individuals as she could to say, support the Hour Day Study Club. So and we definitely miss that and miss her. She was so funny. She said, I forget the woman she mentioned, but she said it became like a contest to see who could sell the most tickets. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure, yes. (laughs) And she said, I'm not any good at those computers. I see them. They're all doing that computer. She said, I want to get you on the phone because once I have you on the phone, I got you. <laughs> and she excelled at that. And I think the people that she did engage on the telephone, those individuals who are so used to getting that yearly telephone call from her miss it. But no, those values and that work ethic, it definitely sticks with us. I hope you have enjoyed my conversation with Miriam. She had so much more to share about the Hour a Day Study Club, including what incredible things the students who received the scholarships have gone on to do with their lives. 
Marin also spoke to me about her work as a strategic planning officer for anti-Black racism initiatives in the office of the president at the University of Windsor. Join me on October 25th as I continue my conversation with Miriam Tolson Murti. In the meantime, check out my website, www.intheblackcanada.ca, where you will find photos and audio clips from Black Canadians talking about theirs and their ancestors' experiences of being Black in Canada, and the complete season one of the I Am Black History podcast. Remember, if you have a story to share, reach out to me through the website or at deepvisionsmedia at gmail.com. The only question is, what's your story? <laughs>